Hello, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio. Um, Global Val will be out this weekend next, so we'll be playing some older episodes of Women's Magazine. Uh, Common Thread Collective will also be off this week. Uh, please do stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. Uh, this here is Roman, host of the Weekly Review. And yeah, stay tuned. And we're playing some music from Vienna uh, Tang, and you can find Vienna's music on YouTube, as well as uh, Vienna's website.
How certain the journey. Time unfolds the petals for our eyes to see. Strange how this journey's hurting in ways we accept as part of fate's decree. So we just hold on fast, acknowledge the past as a lesson. Exquisitely crafted, painstakingly drafted to carve us as instruments that play the music of life. For we don't realize our faith in the prize unless it's been somehow elusive. How swiftly we choose it—the sacred simplicity of you. And 
Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around Get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there.
there's fiction in the space between the lines on your page of memories. Write it down, but it doesn't mean you're not just telling stories. magazine uh global vowels out today this is roman i'm sitting here playing some music i'm at the station anyway so i thought i'd play some good music and also thought i might as well play some good good things while we're here so here's a, a speech by bell hooks that i came across i thought would be great to share with the listeners out there uh so thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back in a little bit 
And this also um, should probably speak more about this. Uh, this is from uh, a speech at the University of Utah, and this came out in 2011. And Wilford, but especially Wilford, because you have to understand that Wilford was just longing. He claims that he tried and tried to call me, um, and I know he did, but I'm finally here for him, and I thank him. I thank him for the shared resonance. I tell you, so often all we hear is about the negative relationships between black men and women, and when you come to Utah, and you find that there's this black man who has been adoring your work, you know, not thinking about pussy, not thinking about how he's wrong, but thinking about the amazing transformative power of your work. You realize that you have met a very special black man, a Caribbean-based, born black man who loves blackness, who's committed to feminism, who does everything he can to support lesbian and gay rights wherever his support is needed. So a shout out to you, my brother. Hearing 
through my days here, especially from young white students, is why do you have to talk about race? Because in their minds, they move beyond race. That they live in a culture that they feel is free of racism. And I might hear that a time when most folks in our nation than ever before are daring to talk race, many of us who have been speaking on the subject for years are oddly silent. Some of us don't want to be heard sharing that they are sick and tired of talking about race. Still, other folks feel like what does all the talking make when so much remains the same? When our nation's acceptable discourses of race are inextricably tied to the normalized practice of racism and white supremacy. Contrary to the popular assumption that folks find it difficult to talk about race, the truth of the matter is folks talk about race all the time, and that that's one of the ways everyday racism makes itself felt in the lives of black people, people of color. A lot of us learn racism through hate speech every day. The election of a black male president has simply brought out of the closet, that is, the private spaces where these dialogues constantly make themselves known. And making racist comments has become more acceptable for everyone, especially when those comments occur in an atmosphere where all around us we hear that racism no longer exists. I've been reading lots of articles lately about how we are hearing publicly more and more overt comments of anti-Semitism. Because one of the reasons, and I've been talking with students about this, that I prefer to talk about white supremacy rather than racism. White supremacy unites all of us who are being potentially exploited, oppressed, murdered because of race, because of what people think about race. When folks insist that racism is gone, what they usually mean is that black people, people of color, have gained enough civil rights through anti-discrimination laws and practices that we are no longer subjected to constant racial terrorism or overt brutal punishments. I feel like one of the great paradoxes of our nation is that if you go door to door and ask people, do you think that racial prejudice still exists? Most people will actually say yes. But if you ask them if that prejudice affects black folks adversely more than other groups, not only will they say no, that there's very little anti-black prejudice, they will also let you know that they're sick and tired of hearing black folks complain about racism, that they can't stand the whining, that black folks are their own worst enemies. Again and again, in accepting racism and believing it cannot be changed, because one of the effects of this whole discourse that racism doesn't exist, that race isn't important, the effect it has on people of color, it's, it engenders in us a profound despair that white supremacy and racism can ever be changed. In accepting racism and white supremacy and believing it cannot be changed, many people unwittingly collude with all the unenlightened racist white folks 
who embrace white supremacist thought and action. Again and again, visionary thinkers on the subject of race encourage us to confront debt directly and honestly, the way in which white supremacist thinking informs the lives of everyone in our nation to greater or lesser degrees. We can move beyond us and them binaries that usually surface in most discussions of race and racism if we focus on the ways in which white supremacist thought is a foundational belief system in this nation. White supremacist thinking informs the consciousness of everyone in the United States, irrespective of skin color. In most recent years, the focus on color caste hierarchies among black people, people of color, which deem fair-skinned people to be more beautiful than their darker-skinned counterparts, is a way of thinking and acting that shows how deeply ingrained and aesthetics shaped by white supremacist values informs our identity and behavior. I think it was like toward the end of the 90s, black people spent something like 40 some million dollars on skin lightening products. And it's probably even more intense today. And all of that has at its core white supremacist thinking. If everyone in our society could face that white supremacist thinking is the underlying belief system informing nearly every aspect of this nation's culture and life, then all of our discussions of race and racism would be based on a foundation of concrete reality. Everyone could move away from the us-them dichotomies which promote blame and prevent us all from assuming accountability for challenging and changing white supremacy. Unless we make a conscious effort to change thought and action by honestly naming all the myriad ways white supremacy impinges on daily life, then we cannot create a new foundation based on a revolution of love. This morning as I was reading USA Today, it had an article telling us that people who are beautiful in this nation are richer and happier. And earlier, I had talked a lot about school children and how all the studies that have been done that show that teachers favor children that they consider to be, quote, beautiful. Well, think about it. If our notion of what is beautiful is informed by white supremacy, then the people who then are deemed not beautiful, the five-year-olds in our nation who are bleaching their skin to be whiter, because they've already gotten the message that white is better, bear the brunt. So when we say the beautiful are happier and richer, we could say the white and beautiful are happier and richer. Because there is no concept of beauty in our culture hardly that is, that is distinct from the worship of whiteness. All children in our nation are inundated from birth into adulthood with white supremacist thinking and writing. I think one of the best books for parents is a book by Catherine McGinnis and James McGinnis. It's called Parenting for Peace and Social Justice. And in this book, they're the parents of two white boys, and they adopt a, a darker-skinned Native American girl. And they're very proud of the fact that they're trying to teach anti-racism, trying to live 
with, against white supremacy. When, they, when she was only one year old, her five-year-old brother wanted to know, Mommy, when Teresa grows up, will she kill us? Having worked consciously to create an anti-racist household, they were stunned to realize that they were still being inundated, the children, by white supremacist thinking in school and by the images of Native Americans on our TV screens and in mass media in general. They write, it was a startling indicator to us of how deeply ingrained stereotypes, misconceptions, and fears can be. Even at an early age, Tommy, who at that time didn't know any Indian people, had a very clear and very negative idea about what Indians do to people. In this case, as in all cases, where very young children express racialized fear or hatred, there's usually an imprinting incident. In her book, it's the little things, everyday interactions that anger, annoy, and divide the races. African-American journalist tells the story of a high-powered black friend who purchases a house where the kitchen floor is actually decorated with old movie posters. Living with these images, she was surprised when her four-year-old daughter announced, Mommy, I don't want to be black. Nobody likes black people. Her evidence of this included the fact that there were no images of black folks in the movie posters. Her mother was astonished by this. I hadn't noticed that only white people were in the posters, but here was my four-year-old child, whose mommy was a lawyer and daddy a doctor, getting this message. And I go on to talk about magazines. Now, many of you know that one of the things I did on Monday night was go with Jan's film class to see Little Red Riding Hood. Now, of course, the Little Red Riding Hood that I grew up with didn't have any black people in it. But the movie does have hyper-masculine black men in it, which is really interesting because there's a discourse going on right now about how Hollywood is getting whiter and whiter. And so it's really interesting that I've read all these movies one of our most powerful Red Riding Hood advocates, no one called attention to it. Rejection of black degradation. 
and is sustained by urgent efforts to expose those spaces within black humanity. Yet Malcolm's leadership focus on decolonizing the mind did not have as much impact as his focus on using anger and rage to denounce white privilege. I think that Malcolm's call for decolonization, for changing our minds and hearts, and in looking at each other, as he was fond of saying, with new eyes, has long been forgotten. There has been such a profound equation of black self-determination with making money. And people have forgotten that money is not necessarily the sign of healthy black self-esteem. I go on in this paper to talk about the recent research that's been being done on the question of whether racism and white supremacy affects the health of black people. And of course, what mostly white researchers are finding is that, of course, it does. <laughs> Even though assuming the values of white supremacy provide a veneer of self-acceptance and may prepare all people of color to achieve better material success in the existing social structure, psychic harm is the daily toxic habit that is not confronted. When the diseases that most impact the bodies of black people are examined, it is evident that class privilege does not lead to better health. In a recent magazine article, Weathering the Storm, writer Ryan Blitzstein begins by stating, African Americans and other minorities get sick and die younger than whites. The long-term stress of living in a white-dominated society weathers blacks, making them age faster than their count white counterparts. His article highlights the research of a white female academic, Arlene Geronimus, who has made a career of studying this phenomenon. Although black folks have known for years, hello black people, that the traumatic experiences caused by facing racist assault or the chronic stress of coping with everyday racism causes health problems, it is only now that more white researchers are looking into it that people appear more willing to listen. As Geronimus progressed in her research, quote, the more she read, the more she began to agree with the radical notion that it wasn't anything inherent to their race that made black people sick. It was being black in a racist society. Furthermore, Blitzstein explains the phrase racism kills would be a vast oversimplification of Geronimus's ideas. But the way she describes it, racism is a fundamental cause of health disparities. When the term racism is used, it continues to evoke for most folks notions of overt assaults and discrimination. Using the term white supremacy allows for the exposure of all the covert and insidious ways coping with trauma and stress create disease. In his really wonderful and insightful book, Emotional Longevity, Norman Anderson, what really determines how long you live, explains not only do race and ethnicity shape many of our life experiences, they are powerful indicators of longevity. Although many differences in health and longevity are evident, 
between racial and ethnic groups. Perhaps the most striking example is the health differences between blacks and whites. He writes, compared to whites, blacks suffer higher death rates from nearly every illness, including heart disease, cancer, diabetes, cirrhosis of the liver, HIV and AIDS, as well as homicide. Anderson does allow for the reality that socioeconomic factors impact health, but much of what the recent research is showing, poor white people are actually healthier than poor black people, and healthier at times than black people that have more economic privilege. While many black people who have material success have better access to health care, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will have better health care. I mean, one of the things I find as a money black person who's been very ill, that I've had some of my most extreme experiences of racialized sexism with doctors, with white doctors, with cruelty, with statements made to me about my body. And I found when, um, like my primary care physician as a white man sent me to a rheumatoid clinic and the white doctor female who waited on me was so nasty. And I can tell you, I never go into these institutions alone. One of the things I think, early days of feminism, we used to say, women needed to learn from men. Men like to go places in packs. And that women needed to learn not to go places by ourselves. So one of the places I've chosen not to go by myself is into Western medicine, especially because I live in an all-white area. And most of the doctors that I'm going to have access to are white. I took my best white woman friend with me and she was astounded by the level of horrific treatment that I received. And we couldn't figure it out. We kept thinking, did the doctor have a bad experience with a black woman? I mean, she was just so incredibly nasty. And then at one point she tells me that I should take all these life, very dangerous drugs. She says, lady, I don't know what you have. But you should take, and she names all these steroids and different things. And of course I say, well, you know what? I think if you don't know what I have. <laughs> and I went back to my primary care physician, which is in a small town. I live in a small town. I teach at a Christian college. He said, oh, yeah, I'm sure she was really nasty, but I agree with her. And I was like.
color here. Does that mean that you all have residual anger and hostility <laughs> and fear of people of color? <laughs> So that was Bell Hooks at the University of Utah at 1, 2, and 3. If you would like to uh, listen to those again, you can, and also just watch the footage, you can check out, if you type into YouTube, Bell Hooks, and that's B-E-L-L, Hooks, um, University of Utah, 1, 2, and 3. They're divided into, uh, what's that beeping happening? We'll turn that down for a moment. Not sure where that's coming from. Um yeah, I can check it out on YouTube. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Women's Magazine. And Women's Magazine, um, I'll be around next week, so I may do another show next week um, in place of Global Val. Um, sending lots of positive energy out there to everyone listening. Be kind to each other. Take down the patriarchy. Uh, take down white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. Be good to each other and the planet. And, um, yeah, stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. And have a great week, everybody.
And we are just uh, waiting on one quick thing, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Looking for a personal injury lawyer in San Francisco, look no further than Francis J. Shaheda. Mr. Shaheda did an amazing job with my case. First, he informed the courts about my case that had not been scheduled or submitted yet, despite the language on the citation. I was so confused and afraid of the legal system, but he did it all for me. He communicated promptly via email with any of my questions. I was afraid of an enormous fine for a small infraction, as well as a criminal offense on my record, but he spoke to the DA to have my case removed from criminal court and put into the community court system. I am so overwhelmingly happy with the results he generated and would recommend him to anyone with legal issues. This is a personal first-person narrative because Francis J. Shaheda helped me personally, helped Mutiny Radio go to him for personal injury issues. You can email him at www.personalinjuryattorney.com fjs.com again the law office of francis j shaheda in san francisco do you need an awesome and underground space for an event Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's Performance Space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. October 6th, come join us at Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse for Johan Miranda. Headlining 50 minutes. Opening sets by Amy Bebo, Clay Newman, and Pam Benjamin. Don't miss this incredible headliner for only $10. Friday, October 6th at 8 p.m. Buy your tickets now on Eventbrite. Check us out on Facebook. Like all those comics, and please 
Come support Pantastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday at 8 o'clock. My friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for me fun. every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Are you a stand-up comedian? Do you want to be in 25 shows in five days at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco? Well, now's your opportunity. Apply now. For the Spark Presents 3rd Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, March 1st through 5th. That's 25 shows in 5 days featuring 40 comics from out of town. And one of those comedians could be you. Go to our website, www.mutinyradio.fm, and click on the submission form. Apply for the Spark Presents 3rd Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's only $10, and you can apply right now through November 30th for 25 shows during five days all streaming live all podcast posts all mutiny radio all the time the third annual spark presents mutiny radio comedy festival 2018 apply now If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find counter-offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamy-licious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They get them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer 
inside of Brenda's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son! <laughs> Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio.